All right, all right, all right, the Foghorn. And you know what that means, folks. It is time for another edition of the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the world's military and political situations are changing before our eyes. What does all this mean? Where could it lead? Is it time for deep-seated attitudes about partnerships and presence and defense budgets to begin changing? We'll be joined by Naval Analyst Tom Shugart to discuss some of these issues. But first, a quick roundup of Naval news around the world. As we record this podcast, there are reports of the first Russian amphibious landings of the Ukraine war. The Russian Navy amphibious group in the Sea of Azov to the north and east of the Crimean Peninsula reportedly is landing Russian naval infantry at a location west of the port of Maripol, a move that would nearly surround that Ukrainian city. Another Russian amphibious group is operating off Odessa, the largest Ukrainian port, located at the western end of Ukraine's Black Sea coast. There are no confirmed reports as of yet that force being put ashore. There are no confirmed reports as yet of that force being put ashore. The Russian Navy also seems to have consolidated its warships in the Mediterranean Sea off the Syrian coast. USNI News and Naval News reported February 24th. The Slava-class missile cruisers Marshal Ustinov from Russia's Northern Fleet and the Pacific Fleet's Varyag were seen in satellite photos as part of a 16-ship formation off Tartus, the Syrian port where Russia has established a naval base. The group includes two Udaloy-class destroyers, two Kilo-class diesel-electric submarines, and smaller ships. The Marshal Ustinov had been positioned in, in the central Mediterranean west of Crete, where, along with the Varyag off Syria and the Moskva, the third Slava-class cruiser operating the Black Sea, the ships had been positioned to threaten U.S. and NATO aircraft carriers getting within strike range of Ukraine. The attack on Ukraine has galvanized NATO with NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg announcing February 25th that elements of the NATO response force are being deployed for the first time in the more than 70-year history of the alliance. The force includes 120 ships from the north of the Mediterranean, including three carrier strike groups, Stoltenberg said, and over 100 jets at high alert. NATO also is working to deconflict member forces in the Black Sea, where Russian ships essentially are blockading Odessa. The Ukraine government said the Russian forces opened fire on and hit two merchant ships, the Moldovan Nomura Queen and Panamanian Millennium Spirit, who were approaching the Ukrainian port. One item that NATO is not addressing seems to be whether NATO member Turkey would close the Bosphorus and the Turkish Straits, the only sea passage in and out of the Black Sea. A closure would likely enrage Putin, and the issue remains open. Meanwhile, the U.S. carrier Harry S. Truman is continuing to operate in the Adriatic Sea, where it had been joined by the French carrier Charles de Gaulle and Italy's Cavour. A large NATO anti-submarine warfare exercise, Dynamic Mantra, also is taking place in the central Mediterranean, a planned exercise going forward despite the war in Ukraine. And out in the Pacific, 
Fallout continues from the February 15th incident when a Chinese warship aimed a military-grade laser weapon at an Australian Royal Air Force P-8A Poseidon surveillance aircraft. The ship was one of four, making a transit across the north coast of Australia from Indonesian waters into the Coral Sea, a move being closely watched by Australian ships and aircraft. The two countries engaged in an extensive war of words over the incident, with Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison on February 21st calling for an investigation. It was an Australian aircraft this time, Morrison said. Who's next? The wide media coverage in Australia reflected growing concerns about the aggressiveness of Chinese actions. And that's a look at just some of the naval events taking place over the previous week. All right, let's dive into the discussion portion of this week's podcast. There's really only one topic, but many angles of that topic that we intend to discuss, and that is certainly the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. We're going to look at how that is unfolding tactically, what effect it'll have on Europe, and really the larger relationship across nations reaching all the way out to China and Indo-PACOM. And we are especially happy to be joined by Tom Shugart, who is a retired Navy submariner. He's a return guest of the pod. Tom was the commanding officer of USS Olympia. He is currently a Navy adjunct senior fellow with the defense program at the Center for New American Security. His research focuses on undersea warfare and maritime competition military innovation and acquisition, and the broader military balance in the Indo-Pacific. Tom, welcome back to Cavus Ships Podcast. We're so happy to have you here this week. Thanks, Chris. And Chris? So, Tom, um, you know, we were talking before we came on, you know, before we hit record. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we could be here for hours kind of going blow by blow. We'll, we'll kind of leave that to the Twitter sphere the Twitter sphere and to, uh, you know, the greater news channels. But I wanted to kind of start small and then go big in terms of things that grabbed your attention this week and things that stuck out to you as you followed um, what's been going on in Ukraine. So let, let's just start there. What have you seen over the last few days that you think is noteworthy and worth kind of discussing with people that follow these issues closely? Well, I think that, I mean, there's certainly been tons of uh, coverage of the, the broader strokes of what's happening here. And we have a lot of, uh, a lot of fragmentary indications of, of what's happening. So I think it's early days to really uh, point a finger at any firm uh, developments yet. But the thing that I thought was um, interesting, and, I, and I, hate, I hate to say interesting in the sense that I don't want people to think that it's, we want to be sitting here watching this like it's some sort of TV show when it's really, you know, people getting killed. Uh, but in terms of noteworthy developments in uh, warfare that, you know, folks like us need to pay attention to, the biggest new thing that I, I think I saw in this week was Russia's um, really large, really at scale use of ballistic missiles that are probably that are and specifically precise ones uh, in a state on state conflict. I think that's the first time we've seen that uh, in state on state warfare. We've seen certainly ballistic missiles used before going all the way back to the German V2s in World War II, and of course the Scud missiles that were used against US forces and US and allied forces in the Desert uh, Storm. But none of those missiles were particularly accurate uh, or ha and had the ability to hit really specific targets. Uh, and, and of course not having to worry as much about air defenses like uh, airstrikes do. Uh, we also have seen, have seen precision guided ballistic missiles used in, um, in a state on state sort of engagement, but not really a war in the sense that the Iranians use them on one of our air bases in Iraq 
at Al-Assad uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and there was video of that you can go watch. Anyone can go watch it. It's fairly dramatic. But that wasn't really an ongoing war. That was a one, one um, retaliatory strike by Iran. We had plenty of warning that it was coming. And then in this conflict, I think we're seeing the first real kind of shock and awe via ballistic missiles um, from the Russians. One reason that's particularly interesting uh, for naval types, and for me at least, uh, is that you know we're all, we're all well aware that if there is a conflict in the Western Pacific, it's going to be a mostly maritime one, and it looks you know the given given how fairly obsessed China is with missile warfare, they have put a lot of resources into that specific type of weapon system, both anti-ship and land attack versions. So. We're seeing it for the first time in a bit of in, in, in the inaction. Remains to be seen how effective um, that tactic has been. Uh, you know, as much as I know the, I'm sure the objective of Russia was to really severely degrade Ukraine's air defenses and also their command and control in, in the first strokes of this conflict that they kicked off. Uh, there are indications certainly today that what we're hearing that their Ukraine's command and control is actually still in decent shape and Russian aircraft are being shot down. We don't know what kind of numbers and uh, to what degree they're being uh, affected, but uh, those, those functions of the Ukrainian military don't seem to have been really uh, eliminated at this point. So lots, uh, lots to be seen there, uh, but, but in terms of noteworthy developments, that's one that really caught my eye. Tom, what, what, are, what specifically are some of the ballistic missiles you've seen being used here? Well, I mean, we haven't had a particular breakdown of which of exact flavors the Russians have been using, but we know that the Iskander missile is uh, the, probably the best known, most modern uh, ballistic missile that, and it's a short range ballistic missile that the Russians have. It's nuclear capable. Uh, and from what I've read, it's more recent uh, flavors that have been in production the last few years are, uh, I guess, GLONASS guided. They're, they're you know, satellite uh, aided and should have pretty pretty good accuracy compared to what we've seen in the past. So the, that marriage of precision strike plus ballistic uh, trajectories, that's been a bit of a new thing in the last couple of decades. Um, we mentioned at the top of the show and as we were coming on there, there's been more and more in the Twitter sphere about um, the use of the Russian Navy uh, to um, you know, offload naval militia. Um, can you talk a little bit about the maritime elements of, of what we're seeing? And, uh, you know, have there been any surprises? It, it's hard because we're still in the early, you know, moments of this, but has anything caught your attention on the maritime side as, as we look at this conflict, you know, three, four days into it? Well, as expected, it, it sounds so far like it's pretty one-sided in terms of uh, the, the naval element in the Black Sea. It doesn't sound like the Ukrainian Navy has been able to do much. I've heard, again, very unconfirmed stuff um, that what there was of the of the Ukrainian Navy was pretty much neutralized right away. Um, that wouldn't be too surprising to me. Uh, they didn't really have a whole lot to work with there uh, from the get-go. Um, there have been lots of reports of um, the approach of, if not the landing of naval infantry, you know, the Russian kind of equivalent of, sort of equivalent of Marines. Uh, both near Odessa and I think near uh, Mariupol. Um, none of that's too surprising. The numbers involved, uh, I don't think, changed the score too much on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, the, the Russian, um, the Russian naval infantry are not troops that are available in huge numbers. I think compared to the numbers that are coming over over land. Um, so I think it'll have marginal effects, most likely. Certainly, uh, will have a bigger effect over time 
is, I, is the fact that from what we've seen from traffic in the Black Sea, it looks like it's pretty much gone away, um, that, there, that there essentially is no um, seaborne traffic that's going to be able to continue into Ukraine for insurance reasons or just uh, being scared away. And what was really what surprised me in the run up to this conflict was learning that even for Ukraine, 70% of their imports and exports are by sea. I never would have guessed that for a country that has such, you know, such long land borders and is kind of off the beaten track there at the north end of the Black Sea. Um, so that's obviously going to have an effect over time. I mean, the Ukrainians have a lot more to worry about uh, at this point uh, with respect to armies marching on their capital. But, um, but it's certainly something to think about and surprised me that e even a country like that was so dependent upon seaborne trade. Um, and that's something, as we see, you know, this kind of revival of state on state conflict is certainly something that our completely seaborne dependent uh, uh, allies in the Western Pacific ought to think and be thinking about really hard. So, can you talk a bit? Let's switch from the Ukraine's against Russians to the display of NATO power that's been going on. And of course, today the NATO activated its, uh, its rapid response, its, its response force for the first time in history. Um, at uh, and we're we're doing this on uh, Friday, the twenty fifth of February. Sort of norm normally we don't have to say that, but there's so much happening so fast here that's probably important to note that. Uh, but today, the NATO Secretary General Jens uh, Stoltenberg uh, talked about that that was over 120 ships, it included the that are underway now, uh, and this course stretching from the Barents Sea, uh, north of Norway, all the way down into the Mediterranean. But uh, it's, a, it's a, quite a number of ships. The three aircraft carriers, uh, Harry S. Truman, Charles de Gaulle, and Cavour, Italian Cavour, have been operating under NATO command. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a new landmark, um, uh, clearly, that uh, this force has been activated. Um, what do you, I mean, does, does NATO, is, is NATO sea power a real thing? Let me put it that way. It certainly, it certainly would be dominant over the Russians uh, should something, uh, should things heat up uh, with them. I, I saw that same discussion and I also noted that, that uh, the Secretary General talked about you know, three carrier groups in the Mediterranean. Uh, certainly been quite a while since uh, we've seen something like that. Obviously, the Russians have put a number of their warships into the Mediterranean, I'm guessing is a bit of a show of force. Um, what I think is interesting about that is as much as uh, they, that may seem like a show of force. Those are irreplaceable ships. I mean, it, I, I went and did an analysis earlier this week. Um, you know, there's been folks, uh, Claude, Claude Berryby uh, did some great work uh, cataloging how, how new the PLA Navy is compared to the U.S. Navy right. uh, with, with a graphical depiction of w which ships were built in what years. Well, I thought about it would be interesting to do that for the Russian Navy as well, them going even further in the other direction and being even older than the U.S. fleet. Uh, I, I was inspired to do this by looking at those amphibious assault ships that we talked about earlier that were transiting. At the point that they were transiting the Black Sea, I thought, let me go look at, I wonder when these things were built, these uh, Rapucha class LSTs. All of those ships were built in the 1970s. They're right. ancient. They're uh, so then if you go look at uh, their surface combatants, it's much of the same story. Um, the ships that, you know, Russia can threaten us with those with those ships in, in, the, in the Mediterranean. But I imagine that if, uh, if things were to get hot, their time afloat would be short and exciting. Uh, and the thing for somebody like Vladimir Putin to consider is that if they lose their Navy, there's no coming back from that. There's no, they don't have the shipyards anymore. 
some a lot of them are in Ukraine, quite frankly, uh, the shipyards or the uh, gas turbine production facilities, which may be a reason why one of the reasons why he's interested so much in there, in that area. But but there's no coming back from that. If they if they if they try that, they're going to lose their navy for good, other than perhaps their submarine force. So that would essentially cause Russia to revert to being a, a regional navy, you know, something uh, kind of a third rank navy with respect to the ability to to exercise sea control and go places. So to to be fair, the the larger units are all Cold War ships. There are no large surface warships that, that were built after, designed and built after the 1990s. There were some that were, there a lot were commissioned, but they took uh, sometimes 12, even 20 years to complete them. Uh, I've actually been on board the Marshal Ustinov, um, one of the three Slavas, and one of the two in the, uh, in the Mediterranean, when it visited Norfolk in July 1989. Um, one of the most surreal events I've ever been to. Um, it was it was early days of Glasnost, and it was the first Soviet um, visit to the U.S. since 1975, the first ever into an actual naval base. Um, here was a ship that was designed to do absolutely nothing except attack uh, and destroy American aircraft carriers, and it was sitting in the heart of our biggest naval base. And walking that ship... Um, it was surreal that they were there. It was surreal to see it. It was surreal to be on board. And I thought the Russian sailors, uh, the Soviet sailors felt exactly the same way. This is, this is really weird. Um, I am also aware that with the exception of a couple of aircraft carriers, every single ship, every single U.S. Navy warship in that vast base on that day in July 1989 is long gone. Uh, decommissioned, scrapped, sunk, replaced. Um, and yet that Soviet cruiser, now Russian cruiser, was one of the three main service combatants that um, the Russians brought to bear in this current Ukraine campaign. So you're right. Um, that's, that's something that would, they would lose right away. Um, the thing I have to wonder, too, about that, Chris, is that, is that, that so we as folks who have a focus in the naval area, it's relatively easy for us to be able to tag the years that their ships were built and to be able to recognize and put hard numbers on just how old that part of their military is. What I wonder is, is if the same thing is true of other portions of their military, their ground forces of their air forces. It's a lot harder, I think, to be able to tell exactly when, you know, just by looking at open source data, just how old is their fleet of tanks, just how old is their fleet of aircraft? Because, you know, I think they're harder to track on an individual basis, certainly, and to know their pedigree of when they were built. But if this, if similar, if a similar theme is true uh, in the rest of the Russian military, that might be something worth considering. That that you know, Putin really is all in here. That there's and there's not a lot of strategic reserve left. I think on a couple of different levels. One, you know, most of his army is 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 essentially going into Ukraine at this point. I don't think there's much left in the cupboard outside of you know the nuclear arsenal and a few border guards here here and there in the rest of Ukraine. We have to wonder also, you know, the risk that he's running with his Navy, if he does end up getting into a conflict, maybe true also of his ground forces and his air force, is that if he loses that hardware by using it, there may be no replacing it, essentially, that the Russia, the Russia we've known that was a great power because of what it had left over from the Cold War could really be eliminated. And I think that's something to think about as, as we're trying to deter further effects. So let's zoom out even further uh, and, and look at this conflict in the context of competition with China. 
Um, I, I've heard people say that this is a there's a great comparison here to to be had between you know what's going on in Ukraine and what could go on in Taiwan. I've heard people tell say that that's absolutely false. That they shouldn't make you, you know draw too many conclusions. One, where do you come down? And two, are you thinking about this conflict in the context of what competition at the high end level or conflict uh, at, at any level could look like uh, in Indo Pakistan? Well, I think I think uh, as as is often the case with virtually anything worth discussing uh, at any length, I think there's truth on both sides of the ledger there, whether it's whether it's uh, whether there are, there are par parallels or not. Obviously, you know, in one case with Taiwan, it's a it's a it's an amphibious invasion, so it's all it's all about sea control and air control. Um, but I, I think what's interesting with the developments in, in with Ukraine that uh, does matter for. Uh, the potential for something that with the with their U.S.-China competition is one we maybe will finally kind of see the scales fall from people's eyes that yeah states really can invade other states you know the history has not is not over in fact uh, and particularly autocratic nations may do things that don't really necessarily make sense for make sense from uh, a Western point of view or, or a democratic point of view. We saw over and over again people say, you know, experts that are that are paid to opine on this sort of stuff that, oh, you know, Putin won't do it. He won't invade because it's going to be so costly. We have to recognize that cost may not be, may not be everything uh, from the perspective of an autocrat who's got who has big plans and wants to you know be in the pages of history. I heard somebody say something about, you know, maybe Putin just wants to be the guy that puts the Soviet Union together. And that's how he wants to go down in history. Well, if you think about that from the perspective of Xi Jinping, how would you like to be the Chinese leader who finally kicked the Europeans and kind of by extension Europeans, the Americans, finally kicked them out of uh, Western Pacific for good? I mean, I think there, I think that, and also reunited the nation from their perspective uh, with their what they consider to be their errant province. We have to consider that those sorts of goals for a personal autocratic leader like that may be worth costs that are don't make any what we would consider to be rational sense. I think that's a valuable lesson. Uh, certainly for the foreign policy community to learn and for policymakers to understand that this really can happen. Um, it's been interesting, of course, also to see that disbelief extended in the in the face of this really clear months long, you know, heavily documented and exposed buildup of forces that was so obvious for so long. And turns out he used it for exactly what we thought he was going to use it for when so many people doubted it for so long. I think about that in the from the perspective of you know you hear you hear planners and and uh, folks talk about all this unambiguous warning we'd have if if China was building up towards an invasion and here we had unambiguous warning and yet there was doubt so we have to we have to keep that in mind and hopefully we'll learn from that this time around. In the in uh, just the last couple of minutes here, um, have you been impressed by the PR campaign, the public relations campaign that Putin has run throughout this buildup? A lot, a lot of coverage, tons of stuff on uh, Russian media, um, and they're by, by the way, they're they they know how to use the the gadgets of the trade really well. I said as a former television director, um, they're good at it, and I mean they just buried everybody with tons of reports. Here's here here's all our military might, aviation, air, and and uh, naval. I mean, and uh, army and naval, and I don't know. Does it? Do you think that's had a, an effect? They've put out a whole lot more. There's been a whole thing going on for the last couple of years between the Chinese, especially and the Americans, uh, releasing images of things shooting, 
look at my gun, bang, look at my missile, bang, look at my bomb, boom. Um, well, cool, that's neat. Uh, not, not, a lot of it is no particular context. It's just like bang and boom. Um, do you think that has an effect? Well, the information campaign obviously has been important. Um, I was really quite uh, taken by how much uh, intelligence information our, our, you know, the U.S. side released uh, in recent weeks, trying to counter that information campaign from the Russians. And quite frankly, I was kind of surprised how ham-handed it ended up looking from the Russian side and how just obviously faked these really basic errors like being you know, the, the data for when videos are recorded, uh, the fact that what's supposed to be a live meeting at 6 p.m. on Russian TV, you can see, you know, the, the, the open source community be able to, to be able to pick out the, oh, look, his watch says it's 1250. This is bullshit. This is a lie. Um, so I'm sure the PL, you know, the PRC is taking notes. Uh, they are obsessed with information warfare and driving the information um, uh, things where they want them to go. And, you know, so that if they ever do this sort of thing, too, they're, they're better at it than the Russians have been. Um, so I, I, I have not been too impressed by the results of the Russian campaign, but then again, I'm consuming Western media. So who knows what his own people are seeing? Probably, obviously not the same thing. Um, so it, it'd be interesting to see how, how convincing it is to their people. I mean, quite frankly, I certainly have seen more, more protests than I expect that I would see in Russia. So maybe it's not going that well. You mentioned the, uh, the Russia side. I, I actually, I mean, maybe it's because there's such a low bar, but I actually have been impressed with the PR on the part of the Western world, um, the sharing of uh, intel information. The, I mean, you, you know, you, you never let a crisis go to waste, right? I mean, in, in some ways, not only from a warfare standpoint and learning in that regard, maybe we're learning what propaganda and information operations is really about when it comes to uh, nation on nation, right? We still have a long way to go, but I've been very, very happy with the information that's come out of Western capitals um, you know, we're not just sitting on the bench kind of like we did in the competition phase. No, this, this, this could easily go in directions that have not yet presented themselves. Um, and especially in terms of messaging, uh, you know, Putin all of a sudden is now he's talking about there, you know, they're, these guys are druggies and they're Nazis. And it's like, what, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, that's not part of the message he's been preparing the Russian people for. Um, there does seem to be a pretty significant anti-war movement in Russia. The numbers of protest, protesters are growing despite the pretty, pretty um, dynamic efforts to grab everybody and arrest them right away. Um, and, and the other part is that I'm not so sure the Russian troops who are in Ukraine have been set up for what's actually happening. They seem to have been fed a lot of different stories about what their mission is, what they're doing. And even today, there have been quite a number of stories coming out of Ukraine about we're talking to the Russians. We've these are both Russian prisoners and areas where the Russians are on the street and people are going up to them and then posting videos, which is, of course, a form of warfare we, we're not used to. Um, and I'm not sure they understand what's going on themselves as this thing plays out. Uh, and, you know, blood is being shed. Um, the, a lot of Ukrainians are not giving up as a lot of people thought they would. Um, even, you know, they're not going to win. They can't, they can't prevail um, against such a massive military. But is this military going to be able to hold what they've got? Are they gonna, how are they going to feel about what they've done? I don't know. I mean, this, 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 this may be a growing issue right here. There's something, again, we've not seen. 
No, it'll be it'll be interesting for sure. I mean, um, to some degree, I wonder how much it'll really matter whether those troops know what they're doing or want to do it or not. And that may de de depend to a degree on how much of the kind of traditional Soviet model of motivation uh, remains in the Russian armed today's Russian armed forces. I mean, kind of the historical version was you just got to make that soldier more afraid of you behind him than whatever's in front of him. Um, so much more of a stick versus carrot uh, kind of uh, motivational model. So it'll be interesting to see if that's still true or not, because uh, it's certainly if it's not as true, then that that kind of stuff you're talking about, Chris, could really uh, become pretty meaningful. We're going to have to leave it there uh, for right now. Um, our guest has been Tom Shugart. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. And we hope you'll come back to, to talk. I, I suspect that this is going to be something that we have weeks and weeks and weeks worth of material to cover. Thank you both. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that sound means. It's time for Mr. Cavus to tell us about the importance of being ready. The sudden explosion of a World War II-style war in Europe is a stark and clear reminder of the need for constant military readiness, and also of the need for international partnerships to face up to such naked aggression. The NATO alliance was formed in 1949 as a counter to the growing post-war belligerence of Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. More than 70 years later, it endures as an architecture for security, testimony to the power of partnerships. Vladimir Putin has expended much effort over the previous two decades to weaken or destroy the alliance, but one of the consequences of his actions in Ukraine is likely to be a far stronger NATO, more united than ever. There are valid worries that with NATO and the U.S. focused on Europe, China will exploit the situation to make more mayhem in the Pacific theater, whether that comes in the form of larger naval demonstrations or even an invasion of Taiwan. But in the vastness of the Pacific, the primary military requirement is for naval power, something the Chinese have taken to heart in building their Navy to the point where it is now the world's largest, if not yet, the world's most powerful. Aside from vast sums of money, creating a modern military force needs time, something money cannot buy. It's easiest to expand an army, witness the buildup of the U.S. Army in the post-9-11 era to take on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It takes longer to expand an air force and build enough modern weapons to be sustained through months or years of combat. But the longest lead time belongs to warships. It is not unusual for a new design to take well over a decade to develop, build, perfect, and field. The time to build up a Navy is not when one needs it. It is long before that. We hope this administration and Congress heed Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday's call in San Diego for a fleet of 350 manned warships. No question it's expensive, no question it will take time and effort, but no question it is needed. And no question that in the absence of power, and most importantly, in the absence of presence, bad people will do bad things. The trick is to be ready before they pull the trigger. No question indeed, Chris, nice work. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>